Billie Holiday was on the radio. I was standing in the kitchen, smoking my cigarette of this pack I planned to finish tonight. Last night of smoking youth. I made a cup of this funny kind of tea I've had hanging around. A little too sweet. An odd mix. My only impulse was to make it sweeter. Ivy Anderson was singing pretty late tonight, in my very bright kitchen. I'm standing by the tub, feeling a little older. Nearly 30, in my very bright kitchen tonight. I'm not a bad-looking woman, I suppose. Oh, it's very quiet in my kitchen tonight. I'm squeezing the plastic honey bear, a noodle of honey dripping into the odd sweet tea. It's pretty late. Honey bear's cover was loose, and somehow, honey dripping down the bear's face, catching in the crevices beneath the bear's eyes. Oh, very sad and sweet. I'm standing in my kitchen. Oh, honey, I'm staring at the honey bear's face. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is The Honey Bear by Eileen Miles. Before we begin to break it down, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere, online, in a book that you have, so that you can read along. It makes things that little bit easier. Something that I feel is important to note is the fact that Eileen Miles has expressed a preference for the pronoun they. You might hear me use them, their, or they at various points. Unfortunately, occasionally, I do use the incorrect pronoun when I'm trying to explain a part of the poem. This is not intentional, and I apologize. It could be a little bit confusing, but please bear with me. This poem was published in 1981, and it documents Miles' emotional state on the eve of her 30th birthday. Miles herself has been a prolific figure on the poetry scene, even to this day. She has gained notoriety and cult status with radical and often subversive verse used to challenge the norm and make people think in a different way. Their work covers a gamut of topics, from love poems written the morning after to the lament that comes from a relationship that ended without any control. That does her a disservice as her poetry spans such a broader range than that, from political challenges to an examination of urban life to wondering if cities and isolation are all people deserve. The Honey Bear is written in open form, or free verse, and I'll be honest, that can be intimidating for new poetry lovers and veterans alike. Where are the stanzas? The rhyming scheme, the clear meter. Despite it being a little bit alarming, try not to lose hope. There are ways to study it and use your own schemes to help you understand it. It's important to understand why Miles might choose this. I doubt it was an accident. The open form was championed by the modernist movement in the 1920s. Its purpose was to directly challenge what came before. The rigid stanzas and strict syllables of the Romantic period were banished to focus on a more human experience. Many poetry purists looked upon this as an act of destruction, but it wasn't. It was an attempt to fuse both the old and the new into some new form that could help everyone engage with poetry. As you may have guessed, it's one of my favourite forms of poetry for that reason. It's probably put best by Mark Strong and Ivan Poland in their wonderful book, The Making of a Poem. Far from being a headstrong rejection of the past, it is one of the glories of this century's literature. 
The problem is to catch it and listen to it in all its power and diversity. And, of course, in that sense, it does not show itself as a discussion of rhythms and rhymes and stanzas only, but also of their source, the powerful feelings and confusions about identity, expression and subject matter that have prompted poets of all kinds in this century to voice their feelings. Miles was no stranger to challenging tradition. They came through what was called the New York School. However, they were part of the second generation of this particular artistic movement. The New York School was a movement founded in the 1950s, an informal collective composed mostly of visual artists who strove to challenge the conventions of their predecessors. However, there were also the poets. John Ashbery, Barbara Guest, James Schuler, Kenneth Coach, and Frank O'Hara. These were commonly referred to as the first generation of the New York School. Their goals echoed that of the modernists, to depict life as it really happened, albeit with more of a focus on life in cities and a good deal more wit and experimentation in each line. As previously mentioned, Miles was part of the second generation, and history and poetry seems to repeat itself with alarming frequency. Their generation rebelled against their predecessors, only a few years their senior, this time fueled by counterculture, combining music, visual art, and poetry to become a strange form of anti-establishment proto-punk. The definition of New York cool was carved by this generation, where this first generation shunned what they deemed kitsch and surface-level lyrics in early rock and roll, the second generation embraced it with open arms, using its rhythm and energy, fusing it into their own work to create a kinetic new form of poetry. Right at the molten core of this melting pot was Miles. Their work has carried that raucous and chaotic energy forward ever since. Identity, and more importantly, changing identity, has been the key to understanding their work for many, many years. And the theme comes up again and again throughout their career. From the very first verse, Billie Holiday was on the radio. I was standing in the kitchen, smoking my cigarette of this pack I planned to finish tonight. Last night of smoking youth, I made a cup of this funny kind of tea I've had hanging around. A little too sweet, an odd mix. My only impulse was to make it sweeter. To make this easier for both myself and you, the listener, I've broken this poem into three parts. This is the first one and I tend to call it the past. We find Miles on the eve of their 30th birthday, their last night of smoking youth. It's a section filled with finalizing and ending imagery, from the last cigarette of a last pack that she plans to finish tonight, the notion of ennui, the death or ending of an era, permeates every line. The era in this case being her youth. That sense of finality is furthered by the fact that every verb here seems to imitate the past tense. This is one of Miles' earlier poems, but even here we see their predilection for making the past clash with modern sensibilities, especially in how art is expressed. The evidence rests in the opening line, Billie Holiday was on the radio. Billie Holiday was an icon of the 1930s, a master wordsmith and a transformative figure, and so that juxtaposition between old and new art is already at play. Throughout the poem, we'll see that the past tense and present tense are used interchangeably, again causing a clash between past and present. I believe that this serves to show the need for reconciliation in Miles' own life. She is trying to look at her future while making peace with her past. Following that brief opening, Miles zones in on the image of sweet tea. It makes her uneasy 
and yet it's been hanging around her apartment. This unease in the familiar is something that will haunt her work for many years. It speaks of an unwanted need for change. Her only impulse is to make it sweeter. Does she seek to lean into the change she feels is approaching? Or is she hoping to ease that strange feeling by making it sweeter, easier? It would be easy to try and read this poem on so many deep levels, especially from the imagery we're given in the first verse. But while I was researching this episode, I was surprised to find that Miles stated that this poem can be taken very literally. In that way, this poem can be looked upon as a documentation of a moment, a will to preserve it in some form. It also serves as a useful reminder, while many literary critics would ask you to engage in the death of the author, I think it's always important to recognize the author's intent. Ivy Anderson was singing pretty late tonight in my very bright kitchen. I'm standing by the tub, feeling a little older, nearly 30, in my very bright kitchen tonight. I'm not a bad-looking woman, I suppose. Entering into the second unofficial phase of this poem that I've dubbed the present, we begin to see the central theme of the poem emerge. Loneliness and isolation is front and centre here, always in the same place, Miles' kitchen. The imagery used here is reminiscent to me of a Hopper painting. Ivy Anderson is the soundtrack of this particular phase, another proto-jazz icon from a bygone era predating even Billie Holiday. Again, the juxtaposition between the old and the new is solidified. This phase is even more literal than the first. There is more focus on the present tense verbs, and this shift helps to give a sense of immediacy to the entire phase. In many ways, it seems to be an attempt to appropriate the concepts of imagism, describing things in their most basic form through poetry, while highlighting their inherent beauty as you do so. Within this phase, we can see the seed of a belief that Miles has held for much of her career. This is Miles herself talking about what it is to be a poet. I think being a poet or a writer, you've spent so much of your time processing, consuming, really creating an alternative self that is entirely composed of language, so that there are precise speeds or toxins or organs in it that work in concert with that state that you are in and can only neutralize your own pain by vanishing into a song composed of exactly that timber or something. I don't know what it is. It's just that I vanished into kind of a not trance, but dictation that utterly resembled the circumstances I found myself in. But by enumerating them, I evacuated even from my own pain and wasn't so much out of my body, but in it in some other way, deciphering the details around me like a breathing tapestry. Poetry for Miles seems to be a meditation, a way for her to process the complex emotions she was feeling at that time. Using this information, we can see that this poem is intensely biographical and used to help her sort through the monumental changes that come with the strange number 3-0. There is a focus on the details of this kitchen, her own exact placement within the space by the tub. There's an extremely reflective ending line here with the statement, I'm not a bad-looking woman, I suppose. This concept from the quote of searching for the right timber, finding the mood of a place, and composing it into verse, is repeated again and again. We can see that she focuses on the detail of in my bright kitchen. I don't know about you, but for me, whenever a light is too bright, it signifies discomfort. And perhaps her obsession with repeating that line indicates that it's causing some kind of discomfort for her. Her search to find this correct timber takes on new fervor in the final phase. 
Oh, it's very quiet in my kitchen tonight. I'm squeezing this plastic honey bear, a noodle of honey dripping into the odd sweet tea. It's pretty late. Honey bear's cover was loose, and somehow honey dripping down the bear's face, catching into the crevices beneath the bear's eyes. Oh, very sad and sweet. I'm standing in my kitchen, oh honey. I affectionately refer to this phase as the minutia, and for me it's the most experimental and emotional of the piece. I can't help but look at the language used about the honey creeping into the crevices beneath the bear's eyes and think of tears. The line, oh very sad and sweet, shows just how challenging this moment is for Miles. It is, in every sense, bittersweet. Miles zones in on the poem's titular object here, the little plastic honey bear bottles that seem to proliferate American kitchens. She verbally documents and zooms in on each movement and how it affects the bottle. There are two unusual things at play here. First is the overuse of the letter O. And second, from a visual perspective, is the unusual spacing of the words on the page. The latter is very explainable. This type of visual play with words was all the rage in the St. Mark's Church Poetry Collective that Miles was a part of. New methods were constantly employed to try and jar the reader into experiencing the poem in a different way. The O that repeats itself in this final phase is something altogether more mysterious. Miles said that they spent a lot of time reading Frank O'Hara, a lauded member of the New York School's first generation, and that he influenced her greatly. There is a famous line in his poem, Animals, where he states, Oh, you were the best of all my days. It's entirely possible that this is an homage to this, or, in my opinion, an homage to the great romantic poets of the likes of Keats, who would often use this type of language, flowery as some would accuse it of being, as a way of heightening and revering nature. Miles chooses instead to heighten and revere her current mundane situation. This work, to me, is a perfect example of how a poem can conjure up so much with so little. To say that Miles is careful in their choice of language does them a disservice. They truly invoke a sense of space. Their own emotions soaked into the cupboards and painfully lit kitchen that the poem describes. Their ability to do this was best put by a friend of theirs named Dana. To hear someone arrive with that purpose and then put it right there, getting out of the way of everything else, to get it right to the top of the thought of the poem. That's the best stuff in the world to me, that sound. It seems harder than ever to do, or I'm confused right now, somehow, regardless. It just told in the room for me. He wrote that about a particular poem that Miles had written, one that really resonated with him as a person. But I think the quote can equally apply to everything they wrote. Miles has gone on to have an impressive career. Much of their work remains energetic, filled with relevant anger and fury, as well as moments of contemplation. They are, in every sense, a punk poet of the New York school. However, the reason I chose this poem is because I think it shows that their potential as a phenomenal poet was always there in plain sight even before their work gained some kind of fame or notoriety. So, how did I do? Do you agree with my reading, or am I a million miles off? I will point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, and as such, very much up to debate. 
If you'd like to talk to me about it, or if you have a poem you'd like me to read on this podcast, you can get in touch in loads of places. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast. You'll find a lot of helpful study guides and bonus material there. You can find the show notes for this episode with full references to everything I use in the research at wordsthatburnpodcast.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Scott Buckley and is used under Creative Commons license. As always, I really appreciate you spending your time with me, and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.